Romans chapter 8, talking about in the valley, experiencing God in the valley. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, truth in our circumstances. Most of us come to improper conclusions about the Lord working in our lives when we're in a valley or when our circumstances seem harsh or unjust. But here we have the word of the Lord in Romans chapter 8, that nothing, absolutely nothing, shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And through all the things that we encounter in life, we are promised that in Christ we conquer, we overcome. So the key for us is not trying to figure everything out when everything's going on. Because we have a tendency to do that. When things are going on, we have a tendency to try to figure out what in the world's going on. Why is it going on? How long is it going to go on? When's this ever going to stop going on? And that, my friends, will continue the pattern to keep going on. Because at that point in time, we are putting our hand on the wheel and we're saying, I want control. I want control and I want it right now. And I want this to stop and I want it to stop yesterday. And if you can't identify with me, then just wait a few years. It'll catch up with you. If you're young in here tonight and haven't experienced enough of life, there comes times and seasons in life where we just don't have answers to what's going on. But what we do have is a promise that God is with us and for us. And that's what we have to hold on to in those moments. We're going to be looking at three examples in Scripture tonight where the circumstances really were bleak. And people were in a valley. And a valley is a place where you and I find ourselves occasionally in life. The first one we're going to look at is in Mark's Gospel. If you would, turn back to Mark's Gospel. And I believe we're going to begin in chapter 4. Chapter 5, excuse me. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And verse 35. Excuse me. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. I'm going to get it right. I had it right the first time. Sorry about that, Christian. Verse 35 through 41 says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitudes, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and as they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea 
obey him. Um, in the storms of life, and storms have many different faces, um, we have to remember who's in the boat with us. And this is a portion of scripture that has been taught numerous times, and recently it's been taught several times here in our church. The point I want to bring out is that in the midst of this storm, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Their response to the Lord was, God must not care. And when we're in a valley, and a valley can be symbolic of a storm, we can feel like God doesn't care. As a matter of fact, we could even communicate that. It just doesn't seem like God cares about me. And God doesn't know. And therefore, that can lead us to interact with him in a disrespectful or a dishonoring way. I don't think that's our intention, but that's what a valley can do to us. We feel like we're hemmed in on all sides. All we see is mountains around us. Um, when we travel to California, you know, on this particular trip, we, we flew into uh, Santa Ana, which is Orange County, to John Wayne Airport. And while we were, were flying in, you know, you're flying over just a, a really beautiful piece of land. Uh, when you when you begin to see the the beauty of California from the sky, it's just an amazing piece of geography. And when you fly into Santa Ana, we got our rental car, and the first place that we went was to uh, to our hotel. And uh, well, we got some food, then went to our hotel. But over the course of the next several days, uh, we drove into the San Fernando Valley. And when you drive in, into the San Fernando Valley from Orange County, you drive through a pass and in down into the valley, and you're surrounded by mountains on all sides. And if you're, you're not careful, you lose your sense of direction. You lose your perspective. You, you don't know unless, you know, you're, you're good at sort of navigating the time of the day by the sun. You don't know what direction you're, you're driving in. And so that's, that's, a, that's exactly how the disciples felt, is they just felt like it was an impossibility for them to get out of this situation. Yet in that situation, they were going to experience God. And you and I face storms in life, and it may look like the circumstances or the valley has swallowed us up, and we are going to perish. There's no escape. But in this particular scenario, they called upon the Lord and the Lord provided for them. Now, the second scenario that we're going to look at is found in Luke's gospel, chapter seven. So Matthew, Mark, and then we're going to skip to the gospel of Luke, Luke's gospel, chapter seven. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 17. Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. 
So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding region. Uh, This is compound pain. This is uh, someone who's in a valley because of death and loss. You know, it's one thing to be in a storm. It's another thing to experience loss. And she's, this widow has experienced not only the loss of her husband, she's experienced the loss of her son. So a funeral procession is going on. The whole city has showed up to support her. They know the pain, the grief, the sorrow that she's experiencing. And Jesus, seeing this entourage of people and seeing this funeral procession, Uh, stopped and looked and had compassion on her. And he went and he said something that I think, to me, um, would be a hard thing to hear after experiencing this kind of loss. Jesus said, don't weep. In all the years that I've been doing pastoral care, I've never said to anyone, don't weep. There's not been one funeral service, not one visitation, not one hospital visit that I've ever done in over 35 years of ministry where I said to a family or an individual, hey, don't weep. And here Jesus says to this widow, don't weep. Had compassion on her and restored her son to life. There was resurrection that experience, that he experienced. And then he was restored to fellowship with his mom. This is something that initially the widow had to think while she's walking down the street with all of these people, a large crowd, And a large crowd is also following Jesus. So you put those two crowds together and you've got a multitude or a mass of humanity that's there. And everyone is inquisitive about what is going on and what is Jesus going to do based on what he experiences. She had to think, God has got to be against me. Just as we're in a storm and we have to at times... Wonder, does God even care? When you experience this kind of loss, the thought comes to you. It comes to me. That God must be against me. I must, I must have done something, something that dishonored, displeased the Lord that I've experienced this kind of pain. But as I said earlier, when we're in a valley or we're going through hard circumstances, Many times we misinterpret what's going on altogether. In this situation, God restored life to this young man and presented him to his mother. So in the first situation, in a storm, the disciples cried out to the Lord and the Lord responded and stilled the waters by pronouncing peace. In the second valley that I've just read about, Less than ideal circumstances, everything is out of season. 
She lost a husband. She lost a son. She's her, she's, her son's supposed to outlive her. So everything is backwards in this widow's world. And everything is dark and everything is difficult. And Jesus says, don't weep. I, I can't imagine what her response was. Scripture doesn't say that there was a response, but inwardly, I imagine she was really uh, potentially offended by what he just said to her. Like, God doesn't care. God must be against me. But both of those interpretations were incorrect. And Jesus' resurrection life brought that young man back So we have to be careful in the midst of valleys, storms, loss, or death that we don't come to improper conclusions about the Lord and His ability to work in our lives. John's Gospel, chapter 6, the third example that I want to read to you tonight. John's Gospel, chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude follow him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. That's two hundred days of work. And so basically it's a year's wages. If they worked five days a week, uh, it's almost a year's wages is what it would have cost. Uh, So just think if you had that in pocket change, uh, that would be a, a, a large amount of of cash to be carrying around, whatever your yearly wage is, and to take care of all of those needs that were present. So uh, Philip answered and he said, you know, hey, if if we had a year's worth of wages, it, it still wouldn't take care. They'd all just get a small portion. And then verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So there was a... Uh, the first response was, we don't have enough money. The second is, we don't, there's just, this is all we have. I mean, we have enough for ourselves, but then the only one who came that had any kind of sense to bring anything is a small boy. Now, the rest of them didn't have sense enough to pack a lunch or to bring their own provision. And so why are, why are we, why are we responsible for taking care of them? They should have enough sense. You know, the boy had enough sense to bring some food. And so he said, there's a lad, but who cares? That's really what he said. Who cares? What's that? What's that going to do? That's not going to do anything. So his own disciples are, are sort of battering with Jesus. Jesus is testing them. Remember that. And then in verse 10, and Jesus said, make all the people, make the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 500. And Jesus took the loaves 
And when he had given thanks, he distributed them, distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up. So for all of you that like leftovers, this is where it all started. Jesus liked leftovers. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. So uh, let me review again, because reviewing just makes sure that we hear it and hear it and hear it. So in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, in the midst of the storm, the disciples called out to the Lord, and the Lord helped them, and uh, they knew that the Lord cared, and it just eradicated that lie. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, of the widow and the son, the widow from Nain and her son, um, who was dead, it says um, in that death and loss where she potentially thought that God must be against her, the Lord took the initiative. So in the first situation, the disciples cried out to the Lord and the Lord responded. In the second scenario that I read, the Lord initiated without anyone responding to him, without anyone asking him to do anything. He had compassion. He had compassion. He initiated the miracle. He brought the resurrection power. He brought hope where there was no hope. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 6, we see another scenario where it's really an impossibility in the natural for what Jesus asked the disciples to do. And yet it happened. And it happened because Jesus partnered with the disciples and the disciples partnered with Jesus. They worked together. So there's times where we cry out to the Lord and the Lord comes. There's times where the Lord just comes. And there's times where the Lord asks us to be a part of the miracle. Each of these situations, each of these circumstances are real circumstances. And in every one of them, it didn't look like they were going to experience God. And yet they did. Every one of them experienced God, regardless of how they were interpreting their valley or their circumstances. In the third one, the disciples acted like Jesus didn't know what was going on. And when you're in a valley, do you ever feel like God doesn't know what's going on? Have you ever come, has that thought ever crossed your mind? God, you must not know what's going on. You must be taking a nap or asleep, and he's not. So there's times where in a storm, we question whether God cares. In the time of a loss, we feel like sometimes God must be against us. And sometimes when there doesn't seem to be enough provision to meet the need, We even wonder, does God have a clue as to what's going on? Does he know that inflation, the cost of groceries has gone up 50-some percent, gas has doubled? I mean, does God 
even aware of the pending circumstances that's going on, we could say, you know, all I have is $5. Is that enough to get me around the block? Is that going to put one gallon of gasoline? How am I going to be able to get to work? How am I going to be able to take care of my needs? How am I going to be able to supply for my family? And yet, in every one of these situations, they experience God. They experience God. So I want to give us some things that we can ponder and meditate on as I finish. The first thought that I have that I want to share with you is that you and I have to settle in our mind that God, and we have to really, the word settle is just such a powerful thought. Settle in our mind that God loves us. That nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. It doesn't matter what it is. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have to get so rooted and grounded in that because in the absence of love, fear fills that void. And fear has a tormenting message. What's the message of fear? I've shared it with you three times tonight. And I need to hear it again. God must not care. That's what fear says. God God doesn't care about you. God must be against you. God must not know what's going on. So the unconditional love of God was demonstrated on the cross. We have to settle that in our mind because we're going to experience valleys. We're going to go through seasons in life that don't make sense, that we can't figure out, that we don't understand, we don't have answers for. I mean, the dot, we cannot connect the dots. It just doesn't seem fair or right. And, and no matter how we analyze it or how we look at it, if we look at it at the lens of, of, Lord, did I do something wrong? Or we look at it at the lens of, Lord, I know I've done nothing wrong. No, no matter what lens you look at, you're not going to come to a place of resolving that conflict until you settle the issue that it doesn't matter, God loves me. Yeah, I have to, I have to get that rooted and grounded into the fiber of my being. Alright, we have to fight off the temptation of trying to understand what it, God is doing when we're in the midst of the circumstances. The third thought I'd like to share with you is that we have to be still and see what role we must play in experiencing God. We have to be still. We have to, you know, be quiet enough to understand what our part to play and what the Lord is asking us to do. So to be still or to be active, it all requires faith. Well, the hardest things for me to do is to do nothing. When the Lord says, be still and know that I am God, that's much more challenging for my personality than the Lord saying, Doug, why are you being still? Go put your hand to something and do it. I... I respond to the second better than the first. To be still is means I give up my rights to control, to figure it out, to fix it. I have to give up those rights. That's more of a challenge for me. I don't know what's more of a challenge for you. I'm just sort of bearing my soul. But it requires faith. 
The fourth thought is, whatever the Lord tells you to do in his word or reminding you by his spirit, that's what you're responsible for. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't make things up. Well, if I do, don't negotiate with God is another way to say it. Don't say, well, God, if I'll do this, will you do that? Just whatever the word says or whatever he says to us by his spirit and bringing things to our remembrance, that's my point of obedience. That's all I'm responsible for. And then the last is probably the most important. When the storm has settled and peace resides once again, and when all the needs have been met, and when life has been restored, give God the glory. Don't take any of the credit. Give God all the glory. And the disciples, you know, couldn't take credit for calming the storm of the sea. The widow couldn't take credit for raising her son. The disciples couldn't take credit for the, for the multiplication of the food. They all had to give God glory. And that is the primary purpose for which we were created is to give God glory. And I want to close by saying this, and I want to invite the praise and worship team to come so we can have some time of just worshiping the Lord. Is that if it happens any other way, I believe that somehow we'll face those same set of circumstances again until we do give God glory. Because if we can fix it or make it better or make it go away or cause it never to happen, then we get the glory. And that is not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is to God be the glory. Look what the Lord has done. If it wasn't for the Lord, none of this would have happened. So there are times where we initiate by crying out to him. There's times where he initiates because of his compassion for us and his tender mercies. And there's times where he partners with us and we partner with him. But in the end, he gets the glory. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641-828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.